welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K., I'm Mariah Rose. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing pretty good. I'm excited about this week's episode. This is one that we had planned on doing over the summer, and Mm -hmm. then, (laughs) you know, whatever. Life happens. Yeah, we don't need to explain ourselves. (laughs) This is an explain-free zone that we're in. We are going to explain. I know it. We're always explaining everything. Okay, well, we'll explain this podcast to any new listeners. (laughs) We are a podcast about the 80s. We discuss 80s-related events, topics, movies, music, whatever. For those of you returning, thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. And like I said, yeah, this is an episode that we've been looking forward to getting into. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it'll be a fun one. This is definitely near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. This is a cult classic, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And um, I think pretty well known, um, you know, across horror fans anyway. Sure. Probably not so much with the average person. I don't Probably know if my, my parents. Mom, no. Yeah, I don't know if my, my parents ever saw saw this one. No. Okay, well, let's get right into it because we've got a lot to discuss, and it's going to be super fun. So this week we are talking about the one and only 1985 Reanimator. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn, and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately they're getting out of hand. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. Okay, Reanimator. This was directed by the legendary Stuart Gordon, who went on to do a lot of other great classic horror films, but this first one out of the gate really became his signature film, that everybody still associates with him. And I mean, for good reason. This was a pretty, pretty wacky film when it came out and mm-hmm. people weren't really mm-hmm. prepared for it. That was their intent. We'll get into that later. But I think a lot of people walked out going, whoa. <laughs> he set a, a standard. Yeah, he definitely set his own tone and standard for what was to come. Mm-hmm. 
and people were either on board or they weren't. I think within the horror community, this is a pretty precious one. But I don't know how many people outside of the horror community are really familiar with it. Or in the literary world, people would know about it too for other reasons, which we'll get into. All the highbrow intellectuals. Yeah, all the turtleneck wearing, uh, champagne sniffing, what? finger snapping, <laughs> tickling the ivories type. Yep, those are the people. Those are the people. <laughs> they all know about this one. Uh, when was the first time you saw Reanimator? Here, recently. Oh, this was a first time watch. It was. I've, I'd seen like bits and pieces of it, but once I watched it, I realized I hadn't ever watched it from beginning to end. Interesting. I guess I just assumed you had seen it when you were a, like a teenager with your friends. Totally. And I, I'm sure it was on in like the backgrounds of parties that I went to and things like that. But I think I also have sort of a mishmash memory of this and sequels. So I didn't have a real clear picture of the story when I thought I did. Yeah, I'd say that's probably common for a lot of people is mm-hmm. there are sequels that we'll talk about at the end. And if you saw bits and pieces here or there, it is kind of hard. I mean, once you know Reanimator Part 1, especially, it's impossible to get it confused with the others. But because you have return characters and, and return crew, there mm-hmm. is a consistency there, even though they were years apart. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I found as we've continued this podcast is just how many things I think I've seen or I've only partially seen either that or I just have like TV and movie amnesia yeah. with certain films and I, I completely wipe it from my mind. Yeah. We talked about possible. that with waxwork. Uh, oh yeah. How, how was it waxwork or waxworks? I can't even remember. We discussed now. it. Go back and listen to the episode and then <laughs> yeah, figure it out. You guys do the research. Don't help us I'm here. so over that episode. <laughs> what? <laughs> Actually, we did get some people contacting us afterwards who had not seen it and took our recommendation, watched it, and loved it. So that makes me happy. Cool. Glad that you guys are actually listening to what we're saying. (laughs) Are we? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we are, clearly. Um, Well, Reanimator for me is one that was a a staple growing up. You know, my friends and I loved it. We used to watch it a lot. I'm assuming that your parents just put it in the VCR like shortly after you were born. They were, yeah, they were just clueless is what I was watching. But I haven't seen it in a quite a long time. It, this was one that I used to watch pretty regularly and then just kind of stopped watching. And I don't think I realized how long it had been until we rewatched it recently. Mm-hmm. I got a really nice Blu-ray that's, you know, really good looking copy of it, as well as a bunch of extra features. We watched the documentary that's on there. And that is For anybody who's a fan of this film and hasn't seen that, I highly recommend it. A lot of what we'll be discussing today or that I'll be chiming in with came from that Mm. documentary stuff I learned there because it's just really well done and a great behind the scenes look at how this film came to be and the people involved and stuff. So if you and it's probably on the DVD, too, I don't remember, but. If you have that Blu-ray, check out that special feature. You gave me good. credit for watching it, but I didn't. You I didn't, was, yeah. I was grading papers while you watched it. <laughs> I was just wanting to convince people that this was uh, all in. We sit we sit beside each other and take notes together for everything. Well, we often do, but not always. Yeah, not I in had, this case. I had work. I had <laughs> work to do. True. Other work. Uh, well, before we get into it, uh, let me do a little bit more backstory on... On this film and how it came to be. Okay, I'll allow it. Yeah, let me go back to uh, Stuart Gordon for a second because he's our our main 
player in this whole story. Stuart Gordon, we discussed a while back, once before, <laughs> we covered uh, robot jocks. Oh, whoa. With the decline of Empire Pictures and mm-hmm. um, Charles Bands, you know, right before he started to form Full Moon, Empire was going bankrupt. And Robot Jocks was in there. We covered that one. It was fun. But I do not think that we really discussed the history of Stuart Gordon in that one, knowing that we would get to some bigger films of his. Even if we did, it's been like an an eternity. It has been a couple of years. So here's a refresher, but I don't think we discussed it to begin with. Anyway, uh, Stuart Gordon, he was from Chicago and he had a background in theater. So he started this theater company with his wife. They basically, when they got married, used all of their money and savings from their marriage to fund a, a theater company from the ground up Sweet. called the, the the Organic Theater. And I really like that idea. I think they were just kind of young and in love and all in. Oh, because it's from the ground up. That's why it's organic? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. They, they fertilized it with their love. I mean, yes, that was love. intentional. <laughs> they fertilized it with more than their love. Ew. Yeah. Anyway, so the Organic Theater was this place that they would put on local productions And they got to know a lot of the local actors and crew. And Stuart, in the back of his mind, started having this idea that it would be fun to make a horror movie. He really wanted to make his own horror movie. And he figured, well, we've got all these actors. Why not just put on a production ourselves? So he started thinking on it. And he was a very big um, Lovecraft fan, as a lot of people his age were. They kind of grew up on those pulp stories and stuff. So he had gone back and he was looking over all the stuff that he had read from H.P. Lovecraft. And something that really stood out was this series of short stories. Um, I think there's six or seven of them, maybe. They all go together and they're called Herbert West Reanimator. They had originally been published between 1921 and 22. They're really fun. I strongly recommend reading them. They're a quick read. But it's great if you want to get a sense of the source material of what Reanimator really was. But this is where he was basing his story from. And he thought, you know what? We'll make a horror movie. And he started looking around for how to get it made. And he hooked up with this guy, Brian Usna, who was a producer. And he said, I love Lovecraft also. I'm in too. And I'll fund it. We know we'll find out a way to fund it all ourselves. Oh, easy peasy. Easy. Yeah, that's, that's how you get a movie made. The way it was done back then. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and so they started getting this great idea. Meanwhile, the theater, like the board of directors for his theater company, said, "You're not, you know, going to do that." When they started getting a sense of what the subject matter was going to be, it was, wait, this is the theater he made. Yeah, but it was run by a like a board of directors and stuff. Ooh, so they're power hungry, <laughs> right? They Jeez. always are. And so basically they scratched that idea and Brian and Stuart just said, well, then we'll just figure it out. We'll do it ourselves. And then the two of them from here on out, this is really the story of how Reanimator got started is the two of them were like partners in crime and they set out on a mission and they talk about this. And I think it's really funny when you know the film is they started getting together and renting and watching every horror movie they could and making notes on how over the top all these scenes were mm-hmm. with the intent to try and outdo every horror movie they were watching. Like that was kind of Smart. at the core. They wanted to make a film that was so over the top, it would be unforgettable. I mean, it's obnoxious. Like, oh, you did this. I'll do it better. 10% more 
your blood. <laughs> but they went in with full conviction, and I will say it paid off it because did. that is the legacy, and we'll talk about that as this episode goes on, is it was very much over the top. But I do like that that was the purpose. It's not like they just happened to make a crazy movie. They wanted to make a crazy movie. So I have a question. Maybe you know the answer. Maybe this is outside the scope of your research. But what happened to Mrs. Stuart Gordon? She's involved the whole time. Um, was she's she actually- watching these movies? Yeah, and she had a cameo in the movie and everything. So, oh, okay. yeah, she's. I think she's the doctor, not a nurse, but a doctor um, during in in one of the. We like educated scenes. women, <laughs> right? Okay. No, she's always been involved. Like, okay. Yeah, they were they were in it together from from day one. Oh. But they decided to do this, and what's kind of cool about this and why it's important is that because they were funding it and Brian was funding it. They didn't have to answer to a studio, which meant they could do whatever they wanted and had creative reign to do anything. And so that's a pretty big deal when you're making a movie, especially when you're making your first movie. For sure. I feel like that's a huge part of movie making is having to deal with so many voices going into the making of the movie. Yeah. And so when you you have that sort of limitation and it's just really these two who are playing off of each other what a thrill that must be to not have like 50 people sort of watering down the vision yeah exactly and being able to just make decisions on the spot which we'll talk about with the opening scene which was hey maybe we should try this and just being able to go do it so as long as they had enough money to make it they could do whatever they wanted and i think that's why this film came out the way it did because I'm positive if a studio was funding this from day one, they would no. They would have said absolutely not to a lot of scenes in this film. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of the backstory. I won't drag it on, but I'll I'll add some more as we go on. But that's really how this came to be was cool. the you know brainstorming between these two guys and and then going out and starting to look and cast and because because Stewart's background is in theater. He went with people who also were seasoned theater actors. So a lot of our cast comes from the theater background, not really from film. And so right away, that was a good thing because they all had kind of a working language, like a shorthand, because they treated it like a theater production with rehearsals ahead of time and everything. Oh, really? Yeah. And Barbara, we'll talk about Barbara and Jeffrey and all them, but they really enjoyed that because that's a language that they spoke. So they would do rehearsals you know, the weeks before the scenes and then go in and and get it done instead of just kind of figuring it out on the spot. So it was very much like a theater production. And I think that's why everybody was really comfortable. It does feel very theatrical. Yeah. It it feels almost like a stage adaptation. Yeah, I would agree. Interesting. Okay. Well, since many of our listeners probably haven't seen this in a while, I'm going to take us through the film. But Mm -hmm. You know, we'll keep it minimal in case you haven't seen it. Then just, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. Here we go. So our film begins where the best films all start in Zurich. A very, very popular beginning point for most films. Uh, We enter a lab. And in this lab, we have a Professor Gruber who is writhing. He's screaming in pain. Dr. Gruber looks very unwell. Physically, mm-hmm. he doesn't look good. His skin is mottled. And then, unfortunately, his eyeballs explode. It's so great. So <laughs> let's stop on this scene because this is the opening of yeah. the film. And they 
they discuss this in the documentary, which is this was a later shoot. This was not the original opening. And what had happened is they shot all the film and then uh, Brian really had control over sitting down with the editor and going over all the shots and trying to mm-hmm. cut it because Stewart's original vision was like much longer. And Brian, to his credit, really had a better sense of getting that story just moving. The pacing. Yeah, yeah. the pacing and cutting out scenes that just were dragging things down or storylines that were becoming too convoluted. And one of the things he noticed right away was it doesn't have a way to capture people right off the bat. So when you sit down and watch this movie, when the first couple minutes you are like, whoa, what? What am I watching? And it prepares you for the rest of the film. So they went back and shot this whole opening scene with the doctor and the eyes and everything after the fact. And I think that was a very, very smart decision because that's one of the things I love is it wastes zero time with letting you know what you're in for. And either you're going to be along for this ride or you're going to check out right here. I would like to think that they were like, we want people's eyeballs to explode when they watch this. And they're like, wait, (laughs) wait, 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 wait. Let's do that first. Yeah. And the the practical effects in this film are staggering. Like the amount of gags they have and setups and everything is over the top. The all the effects artists and stuff were saying, yeah, one of them was talking about how when they got the script, the first thing they do as an effects artist is go through and highlight all the areas they know they're going to have to figure out the effects for. Mm-hmm. And usually it's a couple here, a couple there. And he said when they were done looking over the script, they had almost 100 that they had to be responsible for. And wow. keep in mind, this is a you know a small budget. And so you see that right away is these effects aren't minor, like, oh, off screen kill. <laughs> they're in your face, completely bananas effects. And I think that one of the things, the legacies of Reanimator and why people love it so much is you feel like you're with the cast and crew when you watch this. You can tell everybody knew they were making something so outrageous and so fun that as an effects artist, imagine that freedom to say, hey, how about we try this? Yeah, because they are troubleshooting. It's not like a lot of films had done these effects before. Yeah, and the way they're done is so much more extreme than the way they had, if they had been done in the past, they hadn't been done to this maybe level. Yeah, no cutaway shots. You see it. So you really do in some of these see it all. And right away you see that. You see the the type of practical effects you're going to get, which is yeah, eyes bursting and everything else. It's really, really fun. Yeah, it's great. So coming back, Dr. Gruber, not feeling very good with the eyeball situation. But observing the scene is a student who we need to remember, Herbert West who's played by Jeffrey Combs, as well as a nurse and a police officer and then some sort of school official. The school official, he's like a dean or something, asks Wes if he had done this to the poor doctor. And then Herbert, with gusto, shouts, no, I gave him life. And that's your intro. Yeah, and then it busts into this really great psycho theme ripoff from Richard Band, who is Charles Band's brother. And uh, Albert Band's son. So this is part of the legacy. And people wondering, well, how did they get involved? Basically, they needed a little bit, little bit of help. Okay. Um, and they talk about how Charles Band didn't really fund this film like he did with a lot of other ones. But he was there to help out and step in because 
Brian and Stuart didn't have a clue what they were doing. They mm-hmm. were just excited to make a movie, but they didn't really know what they were doing. And so part of the way that they got assistance was having some seasoned crew come mm-hmm. in uh, on Charles' insistence. And one of that was his brother, Richard, comes in, does a really great score. I mean, yes, it is an homage to Psycho, but um, he's a really great composer and and sets the tone for this. The other one that I wanted to talk about that that was brought in was their cinematographer, who was this this legend, this old school legend, Mac Alberg. He was this um, Swedish director, or I mean Swedish cinematographer, and he really uh, is a major player behind the scenes. And Stuart talks about how he really helped guide the ship because. Stewart didn't have a clue about directing for film. He only knew about directing for stage. Right. So here's Mac, this veteran on the set, really helping him say like, no, no, this is how you cover shots. This is where people need to be. Think about this. Think about that. And I do like this idea that it was kind of a group effort of some people brought in to help out the newbies, but the newbies having such a crazy vision that it was exciting for the ones who yeah, I was gonna had been ask. doing it a while. Yeah, so it has to be kind of a really exciting premise to get all of these more uh, accomplished people to to support them rather yeah. than just eye-rolling their way out of that situation. Yeah. yeah, and Jeffrey was relatively unknown. You know, he was a newcomer, and from here on out, people are going to know his name for sure. Yeah. Because he makes such an impression as this character. And this... Of all the roles he's done, he's really known as a character actor. There's no way he's going to top this character. This is his favorite character for sure. So let's skip ahead in time. We're at a university now back in the United States where we meet medical student Dan Kane, played by Bruce Abbott. Dan seems to have his life mostly on track. He, We saw an unhinged Herbert West. This is a different story. Dan is like a normal, all-American dude doing it getting his md he's a solid got a solid babe of a girlfriend like oh yeah his life is sorted basically uh her name is megan she's played by barbara crampton yeah she's horror royalty for sure (laughs) we've talked about her briefly in chopping mall for sure oh right trying to think if we've discussed anything else with her yet i don't know surprisingly i don't think so we should do a barbara crampton like episode oh that would be fun that would be fun to kind of do a look at her career too yeah yeah maybe we could do that maybe we could get her to to say a few words beforehand no i'd be so intimidated (laughs) i think she's pretty nice anyway uh yeah she's very very iconic in the horror scene really a cutie patootie in this early era of coming into film you know she was really young at this time too and new to all this she was a stage actor as well and so Everybody's just excited to be on set doing this stuff. Yeah, so Barbara is Dan's babe girlfriend. The only real issue is that Barbara is the daughter of uh, Dr. Halsey, who's like the dean or the head of their program. So he's very controlling, more than a little bit controlling, actually. And there's sort of a threat of expulsion for Dan if their relationship is revealed. So they've got kind of a secret relationship, but it seems like it's pretty long term. So I don't know what their end game is here. I'm not going to agonize over that. (laughs) That's a different story. And for those of you wondering who haven't read the H.P. Lovecraft story, 
this is a completely made up character for the film. Mm. So she does not exist in the original story from the 20s. Yeah. There's no love interest at all. But it's an 80s movie. You have to have a love interest. Yeah. And this was a smart decision. This was to just help the story kind of move forward and add an extra angle. Um, but that's not in the original source material. Okay. So Dan's life looks pretty, pretty good beyond a little hiccup here or there. That is, until Herbert West comes to Dan's university. West is a straight-up weirdo from Jump. Like, (laughs) go, Herbert, you're weird. He's that guy. And actually, I don't know if we've talked about your roommate before. Former roommate. Yeah. You're my roommate. Well, you're kind of weird, too, now. Not like that. Yeah. Anyway, this is kind of a similar story. We'll, I don't know. Yeah, I'll spare you the details, but I definitely uh, had a roommate in college when I first started that was very much a Herbert West. A Herbert West, yes. Yeah, uh, quite quirky. Yes. So honestly, we'll we'll let your first roommate rest yeah. comfortably in we'll respect, anonymity. We'll respect those stories. But they're cut from the same cloth. So West has arrived, and he starts by accusing one of his professors, Dr. Hill, of plagiarizing a theory from the deceased Dr. Gruber. Imagine starting college and being like, you're a plagiarist. Yeah. Most students are worried about being accused of plagiarism. He turns the tables. Yeah, he's very, very arrogant, very <laughs> yeah. entitled. Yeah, it's really, I do like this dynamic. It's yeah. funny. It's really funny because as a teacher, I have to like call students out on plagiarism from time to time. And if a student accused me, I'd be like, excuse me? Yeah, of course. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he comes in, guns blazing, and he is ready. He he says, you've stolen from my eye exploding Dr. Gruber. And interestingly, Dr. Hill is not receptive to this feedback. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't take that well. No. So he plans straight up to fail West. He just wants West out of there. It's not a good situation. Meanwhile, Dan needs a new roommate. Like I said, mm-hmm. roommate. West shows up and he's like, we're going to be great roommates. Barb is uh, Barbara Crampton, also played by or playing Megan, not a fan of Herbert West. I wonder why he's weird. (laughs) She's like, not a fan. But Dan's like, he's okay, And he gives him the room and allows Herbert West to set up a lab in the basement. Can you even imagine just being like, yes, you can be my roommate and go for it? Well, I can't imagine because he's similar, you know, he's, and that's something that is in the original story as well, except it's very different the way the relationship is in the original story, as well as the time, the duration of their, their friendship is over, you know, almost two decades. So, okay. So you think that Dan is like secretly weird too, and he recognizes the weirdness of Herbert West? He doesn't recognize the weirdness, but what's apparent in the not only the original story, but also they do a good job here, is that he is very drawn to this idea that somebody might be onto something that's mm. exciting. And so he doesn't even know that yet, but I think that what he can detect with Herbert West is that this guy might have you know some brilliance in him, and he's interested to see where it goes. And although he'll get a little more involved than he should have been, I could see another medical student who likes to kind of push the limits say, yeah, sure, set up in the basement and we'll see what happens. Because I don't think that that's completely out of the question to have 
scientists have kind of home little mini labs in their homes too i don't know it seems kind of made up but okay okay well, are you a medical student let us know <laughs> yeah let uh, us know do you let have mariah a... know because she's the one that's questioning this. let me know through you <laughs> no not through me i'm not gonna tell you okay shortly <laughs> after wes moves in dan's cat rufus disappears megan discovers that west has has the dead cat yes that's unfortunate i mean i'd be like goodbye right there and police would be involved but that's not what happens in this situation there's some mix them up and some screaming but the cat cat is coming back to life it's really funny yes so cat's back in the game of life apparently west has used his own invented green goo called reagent to bring this cat back from the dead and megan is obviously upset by the whole thing because she's not a brilliant medical student like the guys they're just like oh this is fine yeah this is probably a lot to take in uh-huh let's talk about the goo as well the elixir it's really cool this is as far as the the cast or the crew has said the first time that somebody got the bright idea to break open glow sticks oh, <laughs> and yeah. use it and that's what that is and they used a ton of them and it's awesome because it's this really bright neon glowing substance. And up until that point, when I think about things like this in sci-fi movies, it's always like a painted over the negative of the film. So it's got a glow uh-huh. to it, but it's more um, like a Star Wars lightsaber or something, you know, where mm-hmm. you can tell that it's been added in afterwards. This one is in an actual prop. Yeah, you you see the reflected light off of faces and the surroundings, not just like a drawn-on green shade. Yeah, and I think that that really adds to the the look of this film, which becomes part of the kind of iconic imagery of Reanimator, the movie, Uh is that bright neon green. Did you ever, like, paint anything in your, like, high school bedroom with glow stick paint i don't think i painted but i definitely broke open plenty and poured them around and stuff like that okay yeah i there were some tunnels under the mall do you do you know those tunnels um no okay so it was like a drainage ditch but they're pretty tall you could like squat oh the ones that went from the back of the mall to the other to the yeah road Yeah, yeah no i do remember those and we would go under there with glow sticks and like write yeah like break them open and write under there i don't know why okay Teenagers wow, are weird. Real, real hoodlums. Okay. Anyway, reagent. So the reagent doesn't really bring an, something back from the dead. It reanimates their bodies. So they're still dead. They're not like who they were. I think that's an important clarification point. And really what makes this whole rest of the story um, creepy. Yeah. So, yes. Dan, scientist at heart, he's like, Love what you're doing here. Yeah. Sorry about Rufus, but he he's just pulled into the breakthrough and he's going to go with it because he sees that there is sort of a practical application of this as it's refined and controlled. Yeah. And he's just so swept up in the craziness of how over the top this all is and how brilliant it is. And he realizes this would change everything. And I do like that they kept this component because that's really the main underlying narrative of the whole original story it's told from his perspective okay about you know how he got caught up in the craziness of this wild medical student 
who figured out a way to bring people back to life or things back to life. Mm -hmm. And he knew that what they were doing was getting crazier and more dangerous. But at the same time, he couldn't help himself just because it was so exciting. Yeah. And, you know, there is something that's happening here, too, because we have Herbert West, who I don't really think he wants to bring people back from the dead in like to be themselves. I think he's just curious about whatever like whatever this reagent can do but it, it feels like dan wants to use this for like more altruistic reasons yeah. and he wants to save the world and thinks about you know avoiding death herbert west just seems to be like an agent of chaos <laughs> yeah he just thinks it's a cool idea yeah. and wants to see it through he's not going like oh okay so now cancer not a yeah, problem no, yeah i think it's more there's definitely a dark undertone to his just wanting to experiment for the sake of experimenting. Totally. Okay, so let's go back to Dr. Hill, the one who West accused of plagiarism. He is not pleased with West, as I mentioned, and he's on the rampage. And now by extension, Dan is included in this because he realizes Dan and West are roommates and they're palling about. So they're both on his blacklist. Hill goes to the dean, who is Megan's father, with the uh, intent to get them both kicked out of school. That's like his end game. In a last ditch effort to save his own medical career here, Dan and Wes sneak onto the campus and mosey their way up to the morgue because they want to show this breakthrough and they're like, see, we're geniuses. Don't kick us out. So they just break in. They're like, let's grab a corpse. They reanimate the corpse with the goo. And things obviously go terribly wrong. The corpse ends up attacking the dean, Megan's dad. And this is where Dan and Wes really begin to take different paths. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of on different paths already. But this is really where the split occurs because they are not headed in the same direction. (laughs) No. Not at all. Dan is upset, you know, that there is a reanimated corpse who has killed his possible future father-in-law. Wes is more like sweet. I got a freshie. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he's ready. And he does want it. The fresher the corpse, the better. Like the more useful the the liquid will work on the body to bring it back. Sure. With more completion. So they want it to, he wants it to be as fresh as possible. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it hasn't rotted. Yeah. There's less decay. It makes sense. So he immediately snaps to it and reanimates the Dean. Mm-hmm. This is bad. It's not going well. Dr. Hill arrives on the scene and he manages to corral the Dean into a padded cell, which sounds good. Also, it's revealed that Dr. Hill, I don't know if it's right here or just kind of along the way, that he's obsessed with Megan. So he's got ulterior motives, too. He doesn't like Wes, but he really, really, really likes our babe. So he's not a good guy either. Anyway, there's a confrontation between Hill and West that results in West decapitating Dr. Hill. <laughs> That's so good. This is in West's lab. I mean, not only is this really kind of an iconic scene, but in the original story, this takes place in a very different situation. You what know, is this, it? It's when they are um, military physicians. They're doctors in the war. And he... It's believed that this decapitated head, you know, is 
speaking and stuff like that. But it's him experimenting on somebody during the war. Oh, so it wasn't a professor. Yeah. So they're really kind of starting to mix and match. And between this and Reanimator, um, the the sequel, mm-hmm. um, I want to say Beyond Reanimator or Bride of the Reanimator. I can't remember which one's one and two. Sorry, it's been a while. Anyway, they do sprinkle in some of the stories from the later short stories, you know, okay. by like the sixth, the fifth and sixth one. But here they are bringing in elements to that and mixing and matching. Because what happened was when Stuart went to Brian and said, let's let's do this Herbert West story reanimator, you know, maybe the first or second story mm-hmm. in the series. I think it was Brian that said, let's just do them all. Let's, you know, go for everything. Pick the highlights. Yeah, basically pick the highlights. So that's what you're getting. Okay. Um not to ruin anything for people who want to read the original short stories by Lovecraft, but it's equally as enjoyable. It's just, it's a different st- uh, series of events, but okay. you will see a highlights reel that's sprinkled throughout this movie as well. Okay, that's nice to know. So we have a decapitated Dr. Hill in our movie, and this is where everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And I'm going to just kind of gently walk us through this because I don't want to ruin all of the details. Yes. So uh, West is trying to study Dr. Hill now by interviewing his head. His decapitated head. So he's reanimated him. The reanimated corpse is still obsessed with Megan. So his obsession extends past the grave and back with the reanimated goo. And she's apparently so babarific that the dead cannot cope. They just simply cannot. So he's maybe even more intensely obsessed with her at this point. So he escapes... In a very creative way, because his bumbling corpse helps the head (laughs) escape. (laughs) It's really fun. So he escapes, he captures Megan, and then he reanimates a bunch of other corpses and releases Megan's father. So it's a corpse fest. And we're playing it way down, but it is pure chaos. (laughs) And it is so much fun. The other thing to note, because they were making this on their own with no oversight, uh-huh. they're all naked corpses yes. running around. There's a really funny moment in the documentary when they're talking about it being shot and how I told you about Mac Alberg being this old school cinematographer. He's trying to get all these beautiful shots. Mm. And meanwhile, he's trying to avoid all these naked people like running in front of him because he's aware of how films work. Yeah. And at one point he got frustrated that he turned around in his Swedish accent and shouted, I've got Weenie's wagon in my shot. <laughs> oh no. Because there is a lot of Weenie's wagon. There are. It's really funny. And it just adds to the absolute over the top chaos of this movie yes because all the kills all the corpses the blood everything is way way turned to 11 which is why everybody loves this movie is because it's just so wild yeah it's penises it's gore it's pure chaos it's everything and you know really from i would say from the decapitated head on it's it never lets up it just keeps building and building and building and getting crazier yeah you and you have to watch it but hill and west come to rescue megan from this chaos west tries to kill dr hill by giving him an overdose of reagent because he thinks if he gives him 
more reagent that will solve the problem. Yeah, it, it we, doesn't. We um, we brushed over the most famous scene of the whole movie for good reason because we have some younger listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, we'll just say that the severed head. It's got. Uh, yeah, really. It's got needs. Got got needs. Well, what I'll say is this. They joked that this was the first time there was a pun, an internal pun made in a movie of a, of a head giving head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said it. Okay. Uh, also, there's a very famous story involved with the actor's wife going to the screening and oh. seeing this whole moment happen with oh. Barbara completely nude and very, you know, on display with uh, this wife looking over and seeing her hu- her husband on the big screen with his head down there, severed head down there. And um, she was furious and looked over and was like, how could you make he, this kind of filth and stormed out? He should have given her a heads up. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is Stuart's wife said, you know, he had plenty of time to warn her, <laughs> you know, before the screening. That was kind of his own fault. Yeah, why would he? Why would you not clue in, hey, honey, there's going to be a scene that might be a little off-putting? Or just, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I anyway. mean, the whole movie maybe give her a little warning because it was pretty shocking at the time. But I would have stuck my neck out and told my wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever. Oh, don't go out on a limb. Okay. That's not a pun. Like the limbs of your body. He didn't have them. No. So he couldn't go out on them. Okay, whatever. All right. Well, I mean, he was at least... Okay, we got to stop. We said we weren't going to talk about this, and then we've just gone on and on. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. (laughs) So, reagent. Wes tries to give Hill some reagent to put him out of commission. It's a hard fail. And West is pulled away by Dr. Hill. So, like, Dr. Hill mutates. The reagent makes him worse, more intense, and, like, a bigger, badder villain. And he pulls West away. And we don't know what happens. Like, Herbert West's fate is a mystery to us. Does he die? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Dan, in this melee, rescues Megan. And he also grabs... Uh, Herbert West's like research bag like he's got a bag with a reagent and apparently like notes here's how to make reagent mix ABC right shake it in a jar until it's green buy a glow stick and cut it open Uh but Megan is attacked by a corpse during this Dan injects her with a reagent that he has in the bag and we are left with a scream it's such a great ending I love it because it goes like cuts and all you see is the glowing green get, um, you know, put into her uh-huh. and then the scream. It's such a great way to end it. It is. It is. It's so well done. It's so fun. Of course, we, you know, didn't dwell on about a, a bunch of the spots because we want people to go rewatch it. Of but course. this whole film delivers on every level. Big time. It's really just checks every box you could want from an over the top 80s horror. And... You know, not to anybody's surprise, it wasn't, it wasn't a flop. It wasn't a massive success, but it wasn't a flop. So it was uh, released on October 18th, 1985. 
And it had a budget of 900000 That's pretty good money. is good money. However, when you think about how many practical effects there were, they really stretched those yeah. dollars very well. But it opened, got a theatrical opening and made $2 million, So it more than doubled. You yeah. know, they have advertising and stuff. Interesting, though, is they did not want to have it uh, rated. They wanted to keep it unrated for the release. So it was going to come out on uh, Vestron is the one who put it out. And they were willing to put it out unrated. But what you forfeit for that is that you can't use any images in your advertising or anything like that. It has to just basically be like the the name of the movie and stuff. But they decided it was worth the risk because they didn't want to compromise and imagine this getting edited. Like that would have sucked. Yeah, That's really what made it what it was. So that's really what's great is if you have, you know, the VHS like I do, it's an unrated version and everybody who who gets an unrated tape loves it because they know it's going to be something pretty interesting. But it came out, it was mildly successful, but it really, like most things we talk about, it was when it got into the rentals that it started to really yeah. pick up and create a, a cult following. And it built a very loyal cult following, I would say, people who had seen it really did love it quite a bit. I mean, it's yeah. it's safe to say that there had not really been anything quite like this that had come out before. It's kind of sad that in this day and age that we don't have that, where it can sit on shelves of, of VHS stores and people can discover it. Now, if it doesn't go viral or you don't have a friend of a friend telling you about a movie, you'll never hear about it and never see it. Yeah, and what's also interesting is that for as as wild as this movie is, mm-hmm. it was really well received by the higher ups and the critics and stuff like that. It got the critics award at Cannes film festival oh. to everybody's surprise. Okay. And even Roger Ebert, like absolutely loved it and praised it. And so it was kind of weird. I think everybody just was on board with what they were trying to do. And they knew either you're into it or you're not, but enjoy the ride if you're into it. And there was some, the stretch of of how many people love this is pretty far reaching. I've got this week's fun fact. What? <laughs> Tim Allen. Who? <laughs> so this one's kind of funny. I talked about Mac Alberg. So a couple years later in 1991. Mac was working on a film with David Bowie and they're working together and somebody on set tells David Bowie, you know, Mac shot reanimator and David Bowie like flips out because it turns out that he's a huge fan, like one of his all time favorite movies and tracks down Mac, who's this older cinematographer. Here comes David Bowie, this international superstar hunts him down like a little kid filled with excitement and wants to know, like, did you in fact shoot Reanimator? And Mac was like, "Uh, yeah, that movie. (laughs) David Bowie was so excited because he couldn't believe he was working with the guy who shot (laughs) Reanimator. I thought that was pretty funny. You never know. So I just think it's fun that um, this little film that was really wild found its, its audience and just kind of built this cult following from the ground up and that continues to this day. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's Reanimator. It was a lot of fun to revisit, to talk about. And I know a lot of people really do love this one. So, so check it out. If you liked what you heard on this episode and you haven't heard us before, there's a buttload of back episodes Butler. at lasergraves.com. You can find us there or anywhere you get your podcast, um, Spotify, Apple, all that stuff. We're everywhere. And check out our other episodes and tell your friends about us. That's mm-hmm. a great way to kind of spread the word. Positive reviews help. Yeah, only positive reviews. If, if you, you leave got a, a negative, negative review, review, get out of here. Set it on fire in your fireplace safely. Yeah. And never come back. You're going to get a flaming bag of dog poop on your doorstep. You do that. But we wish you well. We do. Okay. Yeah. We love all our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can follow us on Instagram at Lasergraves. You can check out all of our friends and what they're doing. We always um, share what they're up to in our stories when we can, or I'd say when I remember to. I, really well-meaning. Yeah. I always intend Good intentions. To. I just forget to log into that account and do it. But it's okay. in my mind and heart, I was sharing. You were. So for our friends, they know the intent was good. Anyway, that's about it for this week. We hope you join us next time. And we hope you enjoyed this look at Reanimator. We'll see ya. Bye. Bye. No wagon willies. Bye. <laughs> wagon Wieners. Oh. <laughs>